Hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast. I'm Stu and I'm the host of the show and I wanted to share with you that I, how much I love making this podcast and one of the reasons for that is because it connects me with such interesting people and I have to say that today's episode is no different. Dan McCoskey is an executive who brings an organization's deepest purpose to life by weaving technology and strategy together through brilliant design. He's currently the chief design officer at Lloyds Banking Group, leading a multidisciplinary, human-centered team with the singular goal of helping Britain prosper through empathetic and courageous design. He was the head of design at Walmart, started Project Ara at Google, designed the original Surface at Microsoft, led design research globally at Motorola and was the first VP of design at Capital One. Most importantly, Dan knows seven versions of The Running Man and you can see that in some of the videos on his website actually. I should say that I saw Dan speak first at Nudstock last year, and this was recorded in December, so I do allude to it being recorded last year. But when I watched Dan at Nudstock, he really, really made me think about um, how to use different ideas in different industries, and I hope that he does the same for you. Because in the last episode we, with Adam Ferrier, we said, uh, or he said that we shouldn't be snobby about where good ideas come from, and today's episode I think is chocked full of great ideas really interesting application of ideas so my request of you today is to try and apply that style of thinking using other industries uh, ideas and successes in your industry so whatever industry you're from try and apply some of the ideas that Dan's talking about today I also wanted to remind everyone that we're creating this podcast on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network and this is the last month that you can get a free membership by signing up to the annual conference uh, which is taking place on Tuesday the 9th of February to Thursday the 11th of February. So if you sign up now, tickets will cost between £10 and £25. However, you get a free membership for the whole year. So head on over to bsphn.org.uk now uh, where you can sign up and get your free membership. But if you're already a member, then it's totally free. Okay, now I want to get into the interview with Dan, so over to the show. Okay, welcome to the show, Dan McCoskey. Thanks, Stuart. So excited to be here and have this conversation. Great. Um, why don't we get started, Dan, by you just giving us a little bit of an overview of um, what it is you do and your journey to where you are now. So I'm a designer. In my heart and soul, I like to make things. And I like to make things that bring people moments of joy and delight. So I kind of think about design as a bit separate than an artist who is more free to follow their personal feelings of creative expression. Yeah. For me as a designer, I actually want to serve people. And I've done that in Silicon Valley for a decade. I've done that in the world of consulting. And actually, I'm now doing that, as you know, in the heart of British banking, which is so yeah. interesting. So design is needed everywhere. And right now, I'm trying to figure out how design can unlock ways that people connect with money in powerful ways. It's amazing. Uh, can you can you just give us a, a little rap sheet of all of the places you worked actually in, in Silicon Valley? Because I, I found it so interesting to look at your career and then go Lloyd's Bank. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that reaction was exactly the same as most of the folks in my professional network. So yeah. you know, I've worked at Google, I've worked at Microsoft, I've worked at Walmart, I've worked at Motorola, um, I and I've worked on the consulting side at places like Sapien. Mm. And when I changed my LinkedIn profile to you know, chief design officer, Lloyd's Banking Group, 
uh, I got a couple of calls from people that were like, Hey, is everything okay, bro? Like, yeah. You know, like, um, and it's interesting because that strange reaction is exactly why I went from some of the world's largest tech companies into banking, because my feeling is design is most impactful when it elevates a culture or an environment that isn't necessarily used to great design. Um, as much as I admire companies like Apple and Airbnb and other places that really get design and have yeah. CEOs that come from a design background, I actually get more satisfaction being a design pioneer and going to a place that really needs it. So yeah, most exhilarating stretch of my career has been the last uh, almost three years. Wow, that's incredible. And and can you just, I mean, I want, I want to give people a um, a sense of some of the projects that you've worked on in the past yeah, so they sure. get an idea of just how diverse actually this change mm. is for you. So what types of things have you worked on in the past? Yeah, cool. Well, listen, I started out, well, if I'm honest, I started out in the world of international relations at Tufts University. Uh, it was their best major and when I was, what, 18, 19, going to college, I said, the last thing I'm going to do is design. My dad's a graphic <laughs> designer. And I'm like, you know, I don't have deep daddy issues, I don't think. But I, you know, when you're a rebellious, you know, teenager becoming a 20-something, you want to chart your own path. And in school, I discovered this whole world of digital design that was just starting to explode. And I remember learning about this thing called HTML which was wow. so interesting. Yeah. Um, and I remember designing in that medium and we had to put in things like, you know, single pixel, clear pixels that we would stretch to different, you know, fake sizes to track things like kerning and leading and typography in this right. design poor environment. And I love that space. So my, my first six years was design consulting. And I worked at a number of boutique and uh, technology agencies, helping mm -hmm. clients really embrace the power of the internet and the power of software. Ultimately, that led me to Microsoft, where I left you know, the good side of the force for the dark side of the force. I went to the client right. side. Yeah. Um, and I remember, it's interesting, I'll just tell this little story because I think it's indicative of how I think, where I was at a conference presenting some of our innovative consulting design kind of stuff. And this person approached me and said, I work at Microsoft. What you're doing is so fascinating. Do you want to come and join our design team in the MSN Hotmail team? And I looked at them and I, and I honestly said, wait a second, you have designers at Microsoft? Because <laughs> when I use your software, it's not clear to me that anyone who cares about humans is a part of your process. <laughs> and they said, yeah, yeah, we know that we suck. We're, we're just, we're trying to get better. So why don't you come and check it out? And I went, I flew to Redmond and that was the first moment in my career that I realized that I, I was a design pioneer. So I went to Microsoft. I spent first couple of years redesigning Hotmail for any of you mm -hmm. who have, you know, wow. back in the day, I know it's a bit of a badge of shame to have a Hotmail address now. I've still got one. I've still got one. Do you? Awesome. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. So I was a part of that uh, design team that kind of brought it into a modern kind of internet age. Um, and then actually I started getting into software and hardware together. So I don't know if you remember the very first Microsoft Surface, but it was actually a table that you interacted with hands and objects. And I was the head of the interaction design team. Like how do people connect with technology in these more intuitive, invisible ways? Mm -hmm. And because we did our own hardware, ultimately, long story short, 
uh, ended up going to Motorola to go much deeper into hardware. You know, this thing called the smartphone is the most personal and intimate technology device that's invaded our lives. And yeah. having three kids who are teenagers and 20s, you know, it's been interesting yeah. and fascinating to see how it's been, been so addictive. But um, so I got into hardware, ended up going to Google and designing Google's modular phone. Project Aura, which was going to wow. revolutionize and democratize uh, makers across the world to create their own hardware and to innovate mm -hmm. software. And then, you know, a couple of couple of stretches after that, I did go to Capital One for 18 months for a very specific reason to help elevate design to the C-suite. We yeah. brought in seven vice presidents of design, grew a team from 45 to about 250 designers by the time I left. And that was that was my first taste of banking, which ultimately led to a conversation down the road with Zach, who is the head of group transformation here at Lloyd's, and said, you know, Dan, there's not a lot of designers who've gone into banking, but you have. Let's talk because we're doing something pretty extraordinary here. Yeah. And um, and in the, you know, right before I came to Lloyd's, I did go to Walmart and led the entirety of that design team at Walmart.com, fierce competition with Amazon, of course, and mm -hmm. revolutionized all of their processes when it came to pixels and atoms coming together in stores on screens and so that's a bit of a summary of the career pixels and atoms i like that that, that yeah. store and screen thing i like you that. need them both yeah that's true um great i mean own, i guess in your world of course yeah. <laughs> yeah um it's so fascinating to to hear of that that journey and i i should say that i um first became aware of you when i when i saw you at nudge stock which was mm -hmm. run by ogilvy this year actually the first one online yeah. uh, and i saw that you were the third dan in a row to come on screen and you you were following the keynote dan Ariely, and i thought god <laughs> that was the hardest following talk yeah <laughs> i thought to myself this guy Dan McCoskey from Lloyd's Banks got to follow the, the keynote, Dan Ariely, wonderful speaker, etc. But honestly, I think you did a great job. I was completely enthralled. I, I, um, I love it when industries collide and when, when we learn things from completely other industries and they, and they come in and they revolutionize, uh, you know, the, certain industries and banking, God, is it in need of it? So I found it fascinating what you were talking about. Uh, instantly thought I'm going to get him on the show <laughs> straight away, um, <laughs> and and so yeah, I, I'm really I'm really glad that you're you're here with us, Dan. So can you tell us what your role at Lloyd's it me it means then? What what do you actually do at Lloyd's in terms of uh, the design side? Yeah, so my my official title is Chief Design Officer. Yeah, and for those of you that think of you know, know the Chief Technology Officer role or CTO, I am a peer to our group's CTO. And chief data officer, right? Um, so what's so interesting about Lloyd's is they've recognized that what they're doing is not just technology modernization to keep up with, you know, the, the young fintechs and neobanks that are showing how a mobile first technology approach is the way to really connect uh, in the future with money. But they've said, you know, it's not just about tech. It's also about purpose. And the purpose of Lloyd's Banking Group is to help Britain prosper. And they really mean it, which mm -hmm. I think is hard for a lot of people to understand because yeah, trust yeah. in banks is not necessarily super high, but it's actually a deeply felt purpose. And so when the head of this group transformation came together, we decided to put technology and design kind of side by side. So I lead a team of you know, hundreds of designers across 12 guilds of design practice. So mm -hmm. sometimes the teams uh, that I managed in the past would be called user experience or customer experience or 
Um, so we have everything from anthropologists who are now practicing their skills as design researchers, understanding behavior in households and businesses and their relationship with money to um, interaction designers and visual designers, service designers, systems thinkers, design prototypers, conversation designers, you know, writers who are learning how to use this thing called text, which is such a huge part of our interaction, particularly mm -hmm. in banking and how to make the language work. So I manage and orchestrate the forces of this entire design team to work in partnership with our engineering and product teams that are trying to help Lloyd's accelerate its mission of helping Britain prosper through modern tech. Yeah, amazing. And and um, one of the stories that I remember you telling um, when you were doing your, your talk at NudgeDoc was around, and this was the thing that really gripped me, actually. It was yeah. when you asked the question, well, there's two things, actually. One was when you put into Google, uh, my finances are, Ooh. and I did the same thing, by the way. I run a, I run a behavior change and weight management primarily organization and i did the same thing for my my weight is and you know losing weight means or whatever just to see what the the auto you know the auto uh, fill function would bring yeah, up. Right. it was interesting yeah. um, but there was that one where you said my finances are um which i'd like you to sort of give us a, a quick overview of but then the second thing was um when you 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 had people in and you were asking them what does finance mean to you um so i'd just like you to my tell us those two stories like yeah. yeah, those two things are really interesting. Well, so autocomplete is pretty interesting because it gives you a very humanly understandable snapshot of a massive data space, mm. right? So when you type in finances are in Google and have autocomplete on, you actually see the top terms that actual human beings are typing in as Google tries to shortcut you to the most likely terms. So when you type in finances are, and it changes every once in a while, but the, top, the kind of terms that you see in the top 10 are my finances are out of control. Mm. My finances are stressing me out. And this one I, I have not seen change. My finances are destroying my marriage or yeah. hurting my relationships. And it's so interesting because the industry of banking is mostly having a conversation about hashtag fintech. Yeah. Right. They're trying to modernize from a technology perspective. And I think tech has a huge role to play. But I actually feel that the emotions and behaviors around money are in addressing those are actually even more powerfully and positively disruptive than cloud services, you know, blockchain, API driven architectures. And so first to me, that was as a designer, a bit of a preparation for working in banking as a designer where you realize you're working with human beings and humans have these things called emotions yeah. and sometimes finance, you know, financiers don't always recognize that. And sometimes we act, you know, seemingly irrationally. And so my whole entry into the world of behavioral science and economics was having to grapple with the heart of a design problem, which mm -hmm. wasn't technical hardware, software, gadget related. It was, the inner world of emotions and the feelings that people feel around money are guilt and shame and fear mm. and anxiety and worry and doubt more than they are hope, optimism, clarity. And that is the heart of the and soul of the problem that we're trying to address right now. Or, or, or even financial terms then none of those were financial terms you know like if and this is what i loved about um one of the things that you'd mentioned was when you asked people 
what what um you know I, I can't remember what context it was in now but i think you had them in and you were you were saying to them talk yeah. to me about your finances they weren't talking about bank accounts or no, no. You know, amounts yeah. of money what, what were the types of things they were saying to you well it's interesting because well and maybe we can talk about metaphor at some point because i think metaphor is really interesting it's yeah. something that maybe i haven't seen in the behavioral science world as much but you know we we started to realize um actually after i went to the archives um up in Edinburgh, we went and the archivist showed me some of the founding documents of the Bank of Scotland and of mm. the Scottish widows. And we saw these ledgers, these books, these tomes that has really defined banking. And that is really the one metaphor we've been using in banking is transactions and past transactions. Um, but and it's highly ineffective at being a conversation and interaction space to help you with the present, the now, the near future, tomorrow next week, next month. And before I knew the language of, you know, habit routines and triggers, et cetera, I recognized that we didn't have enough of a design space to connect with people on solving the underlying problem. So what we real, what we wanted to do is discover a new metaphor, not just a list of ledger transactions. So we brought people into the branch. We brought people into our customer labs. Our ethnographers went out into people's homes when it was safe before COVID. Yeah. And we... Had, we had we put a blank piece of paper in front of them and we first said, um, draw your finances. And they said, what do you mean, draw your finances? He said, well, we don't know what we mean. Like, just we want to know how you think about finances, right? So some people would fill up this sheet of paper. Like one person just did, they took like a red marker and they just did this scribble. Like it was like abstract, violent, angry, aggressive art. And we're like, well, what's that? It's like, well, this is how I feel about my finances. My parents always thought about it. I never learned how to use it in school. I'm shit at it. Like, yeah. so you saw this like artistic expression. Some other people said, well, okay, here are my incomings. Here are my outgoings. Here's my budget. And we were like, do you have a budget spreadsheet? And they were like, yes, I do. Right. They were, like, <laughs> they were, yeah. they were working with finance as well. But actually um, other people started actually drawing pictures of objects or people. And so anyway, so once we did that activity, the next thing we said is, draw a picture or complete this phrase of, I wish my finances were like. Yeah. And that word like unlocked this notion of what is the metaphor? What do you wish your finances felt like or looked like? And we saw so much richness. We've, we kind of had to do that first activity to get out the negativity, yeah, yeah. the emotion. Yeah, yeah. The second one was a little bit like, well, where do we want to go to? We saw people saying, I wish my finances were like water and I've got a savings barrel. And I've got the well where my, my income comes and I've got a pail and I take it over to my savings bail, bear, barrel, but it's leaky. And mm. on the way there's prep and there's Starbucks and there's, <laughs> yeah. and so how do I plug the leak? And these metaphors started allowing us to understand finances a new way. And at the end of it, I, you know, so beyond the metaphor to your question, people don't speak in the language of numbers and accounts typically when it comes to what they want from their version of prosperity. Yeah. They talk in the language of people and experiences in life. Yeah. So my account for Elliot is not a five to nine tax advantage college, college savings account. Mm -hmm. It's to help him go to university without crippling debt. Like I had. So it's about yeah. my son and it's about his experience of going through university debt-free. And if we spoke to people in the language of, of relationships, everything would change. Yeah. And I mean, and I mean, the, the, the thing that struck me was that 
of course, everything comes back to us. Well, not everything, but most things come back to money at some level, like your level of comfort, where you live, how, how you live, etc. But that isn't the overriding. That's not what causes the feelings apart from the negative ones, you know, not enough, never enough, um, which is one of the things I found most interesting. And I, and I thought, how is one of the, the oldest and most seemingly stuffy institutions in this country thinking in this way? How, how, how has that come about? But obviously, you know, you were at the heart of it. <laughs> uh, well, Stuart, yeah. I just, on that point, I just think this is interesting, and particularly for those that are listening out there that are in heavily regulated spaces like healthcare or finance well, yeah. or education or other areas. You know, I thought about this a lot that, you know, part of the reason why it's so strange to have innovation and design in these spaces is because the perception is that they're stuffy and stodgy and backward and conservative and reluctant. But of course they are. These are humanity's most precious resources, our wealth, our health, the future of our children. Mm. They're so precious that we've had the well-intentioned desire to regulate them because we want to keep everyone safe when it comes to those precious assets. But it has the yeah. unintended consequence of calcifying experimentation yes. and innovation. Yeah. So I think we're at the beginning of a new era of design where we're not just focused on consumer products and goods and internet services and tech. I think we're starting to realize that design has a lot to say and behavioral economics has a lot to say in the heart of these very complicated, deeply regulated, most precious resources for humanity. And I think we're going to see more of this happen. In fact, I've seen a couple more chief design officers pop up in some of the incumbent banks here in the UK. And right. I like to feel like, you know, this role is a part of it. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and I think there's going to be more of that trend. Uh, no, I think you're so right. That, that's such a good point, Dan. Um, when you look at it from that perspective, health, wealth, and, you know, education, our children, that type of stuff, that is... You are you are bang on. It does mean that innovation becomes difficult because with innovation comes potential failure, and who wants their wealth to be at risk, their children's education, their you know their health to be at risk in that in that space? So it happens slowly, and it's difficult to come by. But yeah, I think you're you're right, and it's, it you know it's exciting. I think I think behavioral science, for example, and behavioral economics is really coming into its own of the last few years. I think I we always describe it. I think my my uh, my friend and fellow podcaster Nick Hobson always talk, talks about behavioral science coming through its teens and its awkward teens, mm. and it's just about to sort of go into adulthood now. Um, turbulent adolescence. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just coming through it, and it's now on its way to becoming more you know more established. And you, you, for example, even in even in um, public health teams or um, in in uh, universities and, and um, public bodies, you're seeing more and more behavioral science officers and and uh, behavioral insights teams and things like that popping up uh, across the UK and, and the world, of course. But um, it's I think it's a good step forward um, for, for sure. Um, and, come, and speaking of that, I mean, could you talk to us about you know you, you feel like it feels like you talk very intuitively, but I think that's because of a wealth of experiences being distilled into language that's very easy for people to understand, which I really appreciate. And I think lots of other people do. But but to what extent are you actively and purposefully using behavioral science and behavioral economics in your work? And how has that been part of your, your role in the past? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I think, well, first of all, I think um, as a designer, it's, we've always focused on people. And when I introduced myself at the beginning, I talked about my role as a designer is around bringing joy to people's lives. Mm. So I am not successful. I don't feel satisfaction in my career or what I offer into the world unless it makes someone else happy. 
And so that is really interesting because defining success for design and you know business by helping a person, a household, a community, a neighborhood, a society move forward in a positive way. I think we're starting to see that language, by the way, more in business. I think business has been a pretty hard-nosed place of shareholder value, economic benefit, capitalistic you know, gains above all else. And I think we're seeing a conversation around sustainability, how we treat the world. Black Lives Matter is, is reminding us of the importance of justice, et cetera. Yeah. So with that mindset, that design is about bringing joy to people in their terms, then the whole notion of getting them to a place where they're living a fuller and richer life, you have to wrestle with this notion that their current self may be different from their next best idealized self. Yes. And unfortunately, advertisers play off this all the time when it comes mm -hmm. to fashion or makeup or gadgets like the AirPod <laughs> Maxes just came out and yeah. they're like 600 bucks. And they're like, <laughs> you know, I saw some really interesting memes about it. It's like they automatically meet poor people around you. Like, so, I mean, you see, you see, Sometimes the unintended, unfortunate consequences of using design to play on our insecurities. But I think if we imagine that our our best version of ourself is something that is growing and learning and changing and adapting, and whether that's with our physical health and our fitness and our routines, or whether that's in our relationships and how we communicate and just our knowledge. And so the question for design has always been, how do I get someone from their current self to their next best self? I mean, when we were doing this at Walmart, um, I mean, it's interesting because Walmart in some ways, almost like Lloyd's or even like Microsoft mm -hmm. is a place that isn't known for great design. And it has a little bit of that kind of brand perception as being a bit, you know, quote unquote evil, right? In terms of this behemoth, but actually Walmart's mission of helping people save money and live better was a great question for the design team to say, well, what does living better mean? And, what, and we asked people in their own terms. And then we started creating tools in the whole shopping experience to help people think differently about their food. You know, Walmart's the largest grocer in the world. They sell more organic produce than anyone and more processed things than anyone, right? And so we were like, you know, without judgment, trying to just reflect back in your shopping, not just how much you're spending in your shopping cart, but here's how much, you know, here's the relative health of some of these bits in your shopping cart. And this whole notion of how to use design to change things. Uh, I, I met the behavioral science team at Walmart. And that's when my whole world changed because I recognized that behavior was an unexplored tool for designers. Yeah. So, so you're saying that in, in that in, in example you gave, you would f sort of play back to people or frame the, the, their spending against the relative health benefits of their spending. Is, is there, or did I pick that up wrong? Yeah, no, that's right. So actually, you know, there's many brands part of the Walmart family, right? Everything from Sam's Club to actually yeah. Asda right here in the UK. Yeah, yeah, part yeah. Of that. You know, they, I think, sold recently some interest to Sainsbury's or something. But in Asda, they actually were the most heroic in showing um, things like caloric and fat and saturated oils and just, you know, the kind of things if you're trying to eat more consciously to show it right up front when you're going to the product detail page. Yeah, And then it's interesting, we, we had these early prototypes. I haven't actually tracked the team's grocery innovation in the last couple of years, but we were looking at these things where if you were putting a lot of highly processed frozen dinners into your cart, mm. we were like, well, maybe we can show you some alternatives that would be just as affordable, but yeah. things that you could make 
from a recipe perspective in a fresh, really fresh. Or even that notion of you've got a couple of things in your cart, add these two more ingredients and you now have a family dinner. So instead of thinking about objects in categories, which is how Walmart was thinking as a merchandiser was thinking about shopping, we were trying to think about activities in life. And that was the very first time that I saw the power of a behavioral science mindset to help people actually with this goal of, well, living better means spending less money, but having better quality food for my family or being able to do more things with my budget. And that kind of led me to this mindset that I think ultimately got me to Lloyd's. Yeah, we're going through a process at the moment for this. So this show is made on behalf of the Behavioral Science and Public Health Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, and the committee and I are going through a, a process at the moment of trying to sort of develop a, a plan, you know, a, a North Star that we're heading towards and a, a strategy to get there. And one of the things that we've come across that I'm I'm sure you might have come across is the the business model planning canvas and the yeah, sure. um, value proposition canvas. And, yeah, and in yeah. there, there's a really interesting phrase, customer jobs. And it's about mm-hmm. understanding... Who, who your customer really is, and we we say customer, but in health terms, it would be patients yeah. or it might be users or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it seems as though what you're describing is rethinking this process from coming at it as, as a, what are the customer's jobs? I've got to feed my family. Not I've got to go and buy food. I've got to yeah. feed my family. It's like a fundamental change in the sort of perspective that you're taking and how you then relay or, or frame information back to them. Yeah, totally. Well, and it's interesting because that's always been a part of the design process. And as, as awesome as Clayton Christensen is in his, you know, you know, jobs to be done framework uh, yeah. that where, you know, this customer jobs language comes from. Um, and as much as that's valuable as part of a business canvas, I'm just going to share that. I think we need to have better language and we have to have more courage to call it out. So I'm not calling you out particularly. I'm just calling out the space that we we're so content with this word customer or consumer or user. Yeah. And you know, um, there's only a few industries that use the word user to describe the people that they're trying to serve. And that's, you know, the drug world, prostitution and software. Like, you know, like this is, th- those are not, that's not a great <laughs> term to talk about human beings, even consumer, right? Mm-hmm. Like that your job is only to consume the things I make or customer, just mm-hmm. the economic transaction of you getting something from me. So what we're trying to do actually is change our mindset and say, these are people. Yes. These are young professionals. This is a single dad. This is, you know, a retiree. You know, so we talk about people. And then instead of talking about jobs to be done, which is a, this very business transactional mm-hmm. language, we talk about needs. And we also talk about hopes and fears. Yeah. So what do you want to become? What are your dreams for the future? And what are your fears about getting there? And I think this notion of behavioral science is. Once you understand someone's role, their value beyond just a consumer, beyond just a user, beyond just a transactor, Mm. what are they trying to do in life? How can I help them get there? Then you think about, okay, well, how do I experiment? Use neuroscience, use the system one, system two brains, you know, all the, you know, how do I think about human psychology to get them to that better self? And it is, we are seeing a rise in that in that language to be sure. And no offense, 
hopefully was taken with that comment. I just wanted to elevate our language. Not at all. I, the problem is that when I went, I had to really work hard uh, in going through, you know, reading the, I think it's by Oster Wilder or something, but, but reading those books and trying to get my own head around. Because our, our background is in people. I, I've worked exclusively with, you know, people in hard to reach groups for the whole of my career. And I've always had a discomfort with calling them patients or, or participants or whatever. We just yeah. call them people. The problem is that becomes very confusing when you're saying people in different contexts. It, it, it does need. It is hard. Like, well, what's so interesting about it is the first step step is to get to that generic place. So yeah. human being is like too generic. But then it's like it creates a thoughtfulness that you can talk about. Like for example, in our commercial business, um, where we're talking about users, well, we're being more precise now and talking about you know passionate entrepreneurs. Yes, who are you know, at that early stage, or we'll talk about small to medium enterprises or so. And, and then we'll talk more specifically about like a treasury manager at a large corporate. And that level of precision gives us a little bit more depth of understanding from a design yeah. perspective about who it is that we're designing for and what are their deeper needs. Yeah. And I think, I think it's absolutely the right way to go. It, it's, it almost sounds too good to be true the way you describe it because it's it's very visionary in the way you sort of describe it and what i'm i, I want to make sure that people understand that there's a, a weight of um actionable insight and actionable things to do that that sort of achieve this this grand vision of seeing people in this way and also a proper actual value in it it's not just some you know hippie ideological point that you're making oh we shouldn't call people users it's a it's a there's a value to it you know calling them a, a treasury manager not a corporate finance person for example makes a, a big difference um, well well to be fair i think that that question I, i'm sure there's some folks at lloyd's banking group as i've talked about the vision about how do we talk about people and where we're trying to go they're like oh here's that chief design officer again <laughs> yeah coming in and like you know like where's his spreadsheet you know that, yeah, that yeah. this is right but I think we, we have, over the last couple of years, shown how we can make this mindset tangible. So let me give you one example just to start out with. So, you know, we have these things called customer journeys, which, yeah. you know, have been around actually even before I joined, which are great. These are a design tool, right, where we look at these kind of end-to-end -end scenarios. And we think about how do we make sure that every single touch point and interaction across omni-channel experiences, you know, are all seamless. Mm -hmm. But what's so interesting about that, the word customer frames that, right? And so customer journey, even if we were perfect at every one of the journeys that we've outlined, it's really only satisfying people's interaction with their financial products and services with us as a customer. Mm -hmm. But if we ask ourselves the question, what does money really mean to people? If we're here to help Britain prosper, what does prosperity mean to that person? And if they tell us, well, prosperity isn't, you know, if I'm really going to prosper, when every time I interact with my bank, it's just super simple. Like, yeah, that's good, but that's not sufficient to really prosper. So for example, we're starting to think about going beyond just customer journeys. We've articulated, I can't actually share them because we haven't quite yet formulated it yet, but uh, in a way that we can talk about publicly, but we have at least a dozen of what we call life journeys. And so instead of a customer journey, just thinking about people and their lives, their relationships and moments. So let me give you one example. One of those, and all these customer journeys start with a help me phrase. So yeah. help me buy a home right. is one of our customer journeys, right. which by the way, is pretty awesome relative to what it used to be, which is, you know, 
apply for a mortgage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And the word mortgage comes from death pledge, which is this financial term, which means I will pay this back even if I die. Right. Anyway, so even that change from mortgage to home was a good step. Uh, but these life journeys are more about relationships. So one of them is help me as a parent introduce my children to finances at a young age and help instill healthy patterns. Like yeah. that wasn't a customer journey for us because it wasn't around a home or a car or a checking account or, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a financial product. It was a relationship. And so we did a test on how to make that happen. And we actually have launched this product that actually connects parents with their kids as low as, you know, early teenagers getting into when they leave the house kind of just before their twenties. And it's been so amazing to see a, the joy of parents finally having some support in having conversations with their kids because they didn't know how to deal with money necessarily. Yeah. Um, and they were learning themselves about healthy finances, either they weren't telling their kids that and they had a chance to be like superhero mom or dad, like here's yeah, how you yeah. use finances. And seeing the kids have an, an opportunity to be independent. And we actually structured an account that kids can are the legal owners of their finances and they, their parents have some visibility up to a certain age, but it gets yeah. kind of turned off. So I, I think there's imagine a dozen more of those conversations or even let me just two more help me join my finances with a loved one, with a, with a life partner. Yeah. Like what bank helps you with that? Have you ever had a conversation with your bank about like that creating a joint tough. account? Yeah, that is very tough you know? actually. Yeah. That's, or even more so if the divorce rate is 40%, help me separate finances from a hated one. Like, <laughs> you know, like. It sounds, real... it sounds terrible to say, but it is actually what people are saying and thinking in private. And I've had so many friends, particularly women who have gone through divorces and were never really quite educated about the devastating financial implications of not having a good credit score because nothing was in their name. Or So I think like that kind of thinking is starting to actually generate not just content to help people along those pieces of their lives, but actually new financial products and services are starting to emerge from that thinking that I think will, will ultimately help banking become more relevant, not just as a transactional service, but as, you know, maybe life coach or guide is too high of a, a view, but to think about, but like getting to a place where it's helping us live better lives. Yeah. And, and moving towards, I like the idea of this North star principle of prosperity. So whatever that means, it means different things, different people for one thing. Um, and, and just to go back to a couple of things you said that Lloyd's actually were one of my first financial experiences um, because they used to do these, they used to do these little pig piggy banks and there was a family. Yeah. I don't know. Have you seen those? Yeah, yeah. Lloyd, that was my first memory of a bank in any way, shape or form. I don't know whether that was deliberate, but yeah, that was my first. Um, well, there was a heritage, even like Halifax, um, which of course is, is one of the Lloyd's banking group brands, but they, uh, when I was in the archives, um, I saw some of these very physical savings boxes that a family could use to save mm. or deposit for the home that they wanted to build. And I think in a digital age, we've lost some of the tangibility of money, you know, the physical yeah. currency, the piggy banks, those kind of bits. And I think part of our opportunity now and challenge is to figure out how to make money feel more tangible Mm, yeah, from sure. a behavioral science design perspective. So, uh, Dan, I, th I would normally be asking you questions, but I, you're, you're breezing through all my questions without mm -hmm. me having to ask them. So it's, it's great. Um, uh, one of the things that is fo I focus on a lot in the show is about how 
the the behavioral science behavioral economics your work is connecting people in the real world to um to the work that you're you're trying to to do i, I feel like you've answered that a lot but i i have you, you got a couple, of, tan yeah, a couple yeah. of tangible examples of where this really lands for people yeah. like well before i do that let me just first of all for those i don't think the world of design is close enough to the world of behavioral economics so let me just first say that What's so interesting about design is it actually, well, first of all, it's very human centered, right? It's very people centered when it's at its best. And there are a couple of tools within the way that design has been practiced over the last you know, several decades, particularly as the rise of technology that are really useful. So there's things like personas, which kind of ground teams in the kinds of people you're designing for. Yeah. There are, um, there's things like scenarios, which are essentially stories that about what do you want to create? Um, there are interactions around, well, what are the different interaction touch points as people try to go through that scenario? And even in the world of software development, you're, you're starting to see the language of design come in. When you think about an agile backlog, you know, when, when developers like put things in, they're called, you know, stories, which are part of, right. you know, chapters and epics. And it's almost like this, this metaphor of what we're creating. Mm. Now that only goes so deep. The thing actually that all of those interactions and that scenario is trying to accomplish is behavior change or habit formation for good for yeah. your good yeah. and when we found the language of behavioral economics as designers we said oh my god like there's this whole layer of depth that's incredibly powerful if you connect it to all that other human-centered stuff mm -hmm. of personas journeys scenarios interactions etc now we understand about trigger reward, you know, fulfillment routines that actually can help uh, move things forward. Now it's also very scary, right? Like that's a power that it put in poor hands, yes. you know, uh, and actually we, our family just watched, uh, uh, what was it? The social dilemma, the social dilemma, yeah, yeah. Uh, which resulted in my 21 year old, like, you know, disconnecting from all of his social media. <laughs> yeah. He stole the open source version of Linux and anyway, but, um, if you haven't seen but, it, anyone watch that. That's a good, good. I'm, I don't know about the veracity of everything in it, but it's certainly something to make you think. The social dilemma on Netflix sure. right now. For sure. And I think Hooked, which is you know, such a seminal piece of work in this space, yeah. um, did talk about the responsibility of practitioners to use it well and wisely. And for yeah. good. so anyway, so first of all, I'll just say that um, I say that because behavioral economics has become so practical, almost too practical. Mm. In fact, scarily practical. And I think actually the future in banking and healthcare, et cetera, is that in these regulated spaces, I think there's gonna have to be legislation, regulation, ethics, conversations yeah. about it because it is so practical. So let me just give you a couple of examples of uh, some things that we've been working on. So, well, first of all, we once we started thinking about the world of behavioral economics, we started actually taking a couple of principles um, from that world, which we added to our design and user experience or people experience principles. There I am with that user yeah. word, um, <laughs> yeah. using it myself. And so like, for example, there was um, one principle that we, we we added, which was called locus of control. Mm -hmm. And locus of control, as we talked about before, I didn't know about this, but learned it from a London School of Economics professor that this is, um, it's basically a question that asks, how empowered do you feel to make change? And yeah. if people say, I'm totally empowered. That's within me. Society's rough. My family puts me down, but I can make change. The locus or the center of that control is within them. And if people answer that question, 
they're much more likely to actually have more positive kind of social impact. If yeah. people say, oh, I can't do anything. Society puts me down. My family's against me. I just don't have the energy. If that locus moves outside of me or externalizes, you're much less likely to feel empowered. So when we started thinking about locus of control, we started to recognize that we, people come to banking and to finances across that gradient. Some people are like, yeah, I'm on top of my finances. These are my finances. I control my money. Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's my servant, right? And there's some people that say, my money controls me. I have no idea what's going on. And then mm. those two different extremes and everything in between needs a very different language. So we've actually, our writers, um, some actually are screenwriters from the movie industry and actually create actual narratives. Some yeah. are more kind of from an editorial perspective, but these conversation designers have started to create experiments using behavioral science experiments and principles about how do we change our language to speak to someone in a way that for that person who feels like externalized locus of control, how do we get it to a place where they feel more empowered? Like you got this. Like you can do this. Like, so there's parts of our digital estate where you're like set a goal or do you want to start saving the change and round up your transactions to start saving for the future? And like in those moments, just little affirmations can go a long way in helping to change the energy and optimism, which at the end of the day, if you're going to change behavior, you need that internal energy and optimism to do that. Right. Of course. Yeah. And then actually the more more practical example, I think, which we can all relate to is um, even things like budgeting and going into overdraft. So typically what would happen is if you would, if you go into overdraft, you know, we'll, we'll kind of notify you and say, Hey, you've gone into overdraft. You know, we, you know, we're glad you're using this as a tool, but we would, you know, just use it wisely because this is, you know, we, we want people not to stay in that space, right? Even though mm-hmm. it's a tool that you can use in the short term. And our team started saying, well, why don't, why don't we send them notifications before they go into overdraft? Because our transactional historical prediction engine should probably tell us a couple of weeks beforehand, or at least a few days beforehand, that you're likely to go into overdraft because yeah. we probably know what your income is. We probably know what your bills and budget are. We pro- you know, so let's help people before that moment. And so we started in our native app for iOS and Android testing real-time notifications. And if you take the notion of locus of control and actually this other principle we would call conscientiousness, right? Those that are really conscientious about their money tend to not go into overdraft because they're out there kind of checking it. And those that are much more spontaneous live in the moment, well, sometimes they go in overdraft. That's me. I I tend to go in overdraft when I'm not paying attention. So... The language was really key when we first started doing it, said, Hey, we're about, you're about to go into overdraft. There was a reaction of like, Oh, like, well, thanks. I, there's nothing I can do about it. This month is rough. I have a family emergency. You're just making me feel guilty. Um, and even though we didn't intend it, they felt like we were saying, Oh, you suck in your finances. Yeah, yeah. Like get ready for a crash. And so we started testing out other things. Like one, one of the most successful was, Hey, heads up these three or four bills are coming out next week. Just wanted to give you a heads up. So Which by making is, it specific and by ensuring it's timely, um, you are increasing the likelihood that they'll be able to directly engage with it. Totally, totally. It would be like a personal trainer saying, hey, you're, you're going to gain weight next week because you're just, you've got no control and you're really fat. Like that, that wouldn't motivate anyone. But if someone no. says, hey, 
you go to a birthday party next week and there's an opportunity to like, you know, bring your own snacks. I, I don't know. I don't know what a coach would say. That's a horrible example. But we, we started to just give information that was specific and that would have the same intended consequence of just making you more conscientious, making you more alert. Yeah. And this is where the banking industry gets it really wrong. I think when faced with the notion of financial well-being, they say, well, let's just get everyone financially literate. Let's yeah. put some webinar on our website, like learn about APR, learn about long-term retirement planning. And if you just learn all the of all our language, you'll be financially better off. And that's not how it works. Banking has to learn the language of people. People yeah. don't need to learn the language of banking. And so uh, that's the change. I think, I think there's so many, so, so I did a talk to your, your team uh, a few weeks ago that they, they call it the, thank God it's Monday TGIM, uh, which I love actually. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they did like a 10 minute talk and then some questions and answers yeah. for about half an hour every Monday. Right. With, with, yeah, yeah. you know, how many of like, maybe you're so excited to come into work on Monday that you're like, thank God, let's start. Yeah. Let's do this. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So I love a little bit of a behavioral science, you know, vocabulary there. Again, wouldn't have thought that I would have found that in Lloyd's, but it was there and, and I really enjoyed talking to the team. But one of the things that was really clear to me that there's uh, my business in, and my, my organization, Busybody, is, it focuses on um, sustainably changing behavior around weight prim- primarily, but we do other public health interventions as well. And there's so many, uh, there's so much affinity between finances and weight um, in as much as, uh, and, you know, that's what we, myself and your team were talking about. And and, and that was, you know, that we all want to be thin and, and be fit uh, and whatever. Yeah. We all want to have money saved. But we also have that moment, you know, that moment to moment life, that real life uh, lived experience of, yeah, but I also want to eat this now and I want to go there. I don't want to get up in the rain and go for whatever. Uh, I also want to spend money, you know, now uh, as well. And, and I think that the, the analogy works so well. Um, from an understanding how people really are. And, and I think, you know, you gave a thing and then you, you, you gave an example there about, oh, you know, a personal trainer, you go into a thing next week and, you know, maybe that wouldn't work. Uh, well, that is what we would be suggesting, you know, trying to use what we call it is the planning self and the doing mm-hmm. self. And it comes mm-hmm. from Daniel Kahneman's system one and two thinking, but it's much yeah, more yeah. human centered. Who knows what system one and two thinking? I get mixed up all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's that notion of trying to... to um, change the default to create a future uh, a set of of choices or or no choice you know trying to eliminate choice or severely restrict it in the future when you're in this sort of rational planning space um from a weight perspective but also from a finance perspective why do we why do we have all our bills go out on the day we get paid well because we know otherwise (laughs) the money's gonna drift away and and you won't be able to pay your bills you gotta pay your important stuff first right um, which so I, I think it's there's so many, there's so much affinity here. Every aspect of our financial lives, every interaction, every number, every screen has to be rethought along those lines around financial mm-hmm. well-being. And I think it's the same thing with health. I remember, I think before the days of you know Fitbit and like I'm actually using this Widings watch and the HealthMate mm-hmm. app, which is actually really, I think, pretty amazing. They even have these things where you can have a leaderboard and challenges with friends, and mm-hmm. it's just. You know, that kind of notion of friendly competition has just completely changed the way I think about fitness. But before Fitbit started democratizing this notion of nudging Mm. um, and making health more accessible, you would go to like a a fitness trainer, right? And they'd they'd talk to you in like kilocalories and exercise reps. And, you know, Mm. you got to come into this really awkward gym space. And here's where you, and I think it's so exciting to see this new world with Apple health and with a new set of personal devices, et cetera, that is, and probably the work that you're doing, Mm. um, 
you're seeing that it's not about people learning the language of medicine and nutrition and sports rehabilitation. It's those worlds learning the language of people, which is how many steps did you walk today? Or is, you know, how how is your food today? Or, you know, things like that. So I think we're starting to make those changes. Some of that is about shifting mindset, you know, Dan. And and we 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 talk about. Uh, I've I've worked in weight management for fifteen years since the beginning of my career, and I think the whole purpose of my career has been to try and translate what is quite complex into things that are quite simple. I don't think for any for for a moment that I've cracked that. Um, but we have come a long way and we talk about three universal truths because it's the most easy way for people to understand this. And they, they come down to that people aren't as rational as they like to think. We know that, but we just, we, we do some experiments with them rather than tell them that, uh, get them to feel a bit irrational about certain decisions they might have make, made or make. Um, then the second one is that, that um, there's two selves, the planning self and the doing self that I just alluded to a moment ago. And the third one is really uh, a sort of result, um, which is that, if your planning self, the plans that they make aren't lived out in the real world by the doing self, you often end up at what we call the what the hell effect. Mm-hmm. And that's that moment. And, and everyone sort of gets that principle. And so if you describe that to people and say, look, the reason that you have failed to make this change in the past is okay. It's not your fault per se. It's just the way we're wired as humans. You know, We are wired this way and it's really tough and failure is almost inevitable. But that's where all the good stuff is. So let's try and le- let's not try and fit your life to this plan. Let's try and fit this plan to your life right. by learning all the things that and don't work. That you're going to fail. Exactly. Yeah, and being okay with that. fail. Like yes. it's yeah. it's about how you pick yourself up and how we pick you up. You know, it's yeah. interesting. I, I, I was so I'll, I'll let you know what our metaphor is in broad terms. So there were a lot of metaphors that we saw in that earlier exercise we described when we asked people to say my finances are like. The metaphor in general terms that we found, it's a journey. It's a road. It's a future, right? And the notion of having this space where you can think about today, tomorrow, next week, someday, or, you know, long time. We're really good at the long-term future, like Mm -hmm. retirement calculators and, you know, like these kind of like, how much would it cost to get a down payment for a house? And like, okay, it's going to take you 15 years, but you'll get there, right? Like the long-term, we kind of had these calculators and we're really good at the past statements, transactions, ledgers. It's really about now and into the future. And in that journey space, these are exactly the interactions that we're starting to design for. Not just what we call the happy path or the idealized scenario, but what's the, okay, on Saturday night when I'm like, all right, I really got to get better this week. I don't want to have work lunches out. I want to bring food because I'm spending an extra like 30, what do we say here in the UK? Quid, 30 quid a month, mm-hmm. a week, right? Or whatever it is. And then like, well, what happens on Monday? You're like, great. I prepared on Sunday. I got that first bag lunch. And then on Tuesday, you're like, oh, work was tough. I just Netflix and vegged out. And now oh, you know, I'm going to do, you know. right? Yeah. So I think like this whole notion of giving people the space to be human, giving them always opportunities for encouragement, like Nike Plus does a great job of this with their whole running experience where no matter what your data is, even if you haven't run for a long time or your pace is slowing, they always find something positive to say, but also real. And so I think this notion of you don't want to be that disciplinary and angry father figure 
Mm. or that overprotected, you can do nothing wrong, like mother figure, or sorry to stereotype with those kind of roles. It could be reversed, of course, but like we want to be just really that encouraging coach that recognizes that you're human, that you're going to stumble and that's okay. And, and in an authentic tone and and way and and because one of the things i remember when we were doing some app development work was um this this notion of you can get some things wrong about someone for a brief period of time but they need to feel like this thing that they're using get knows them uh, enough that it sort of really understands what what's going on and it's not just some algorithm that's churning out the same stuff to everybody all the time so yeah i i I totally get that it's interesting too because even for weight i wonder Maybe I'll ask you a question if I can flip the rules for a second. But yes, it's almost like we oh, look very similar, actually. I think I think you can, I know. You can get away with that. Yeah. <laughs> I might, actually, yeah. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Dan. Just just look straight in the camera. I'm going to screenshot this, and this will be the photo that we use because I'm I'm going to say, uh, right? Okay, ready? Okay, there. Everyone can see that. So if you're listening, the picture is there for that reason. So you're flipping the roles. So go go ahead. Well, I just, I'm, it's interesting because I think the notion of I want to be this weight, like I have a weight goal and my happiness or sadness along my journey is like how, how much I'm dropping or usually dropping, right? Yeah. In to get to that weight, I think in some ways is potentially as unhelpful as a budget. Like I, I don't want to spend more than this each month on this category. Mm-hmm. And actually what's, I just, I'll, I'll just share a little insight and then maybe ask you if there's parallels is as we start to think about like what 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 would you see when you log into your your financial app is the question we've been asking and typically you see, you see an account you see a balance right of course you want to see how much money you got in your account but actually that's not the most important thing that really matters what really matters is how much spendable cash do i have like i might say i've got 500 pounds in my account but you know how much i spend on groceries maybe a couple bills haven't come out so maybe I actually have kind of negative five pounds, but I just didn't, I'm not thinking about it because I'm not thinking about when everything comes out. So what we're starting to do is start to, first of all, not focus on hard budget numbers, but we're trying to say when you come in, hey, you've got 20 pounds extra to spend today and still meet all your needs. And you're like, oh, cool. I got 20 pounds to spend. Let me use that on something. Um or, hey, you're running a little hot. Maybe you want to like not do a work lunch today. And just, you know, mm-hmm. so like I think this whole notion of relative progress to where you're at instead of absolute attainment of some difficult goal is a really important way to break people through that guilt they feel about finances. Is it the same in weight? Well, I mean, I think if you think people feel guilty about finances you get yourself into the weight game i mean that that is the the key thing and it's funny because i i I noted that you mentioned um guilt and shame earlier so that that there was a something that really changed the way i thought about weight and particularly women actually um and again it's not not a gender stereotype here but um was was brene brown's work and she talks a lot about guilt and shame and that that really fundamentally shifted the way i thought about how do you actually get this to someone how do you really understand what someone's going through when they are trying to lose weight for example and guilt and shame particularly for parents um guilt and shame from a weight perspective is one thing you also get that for like people generally have just enough money to do what they want to do in the main and certainly the people we work with or they don't have enough money to do what they want to do and so they either work and don't have the time and and and, you know patience and stuff for the kids that they're for their kids or they have enough money to do stuff with them but they're and they're but they're working they don't have time or they're or the opposite they don't 
have as much money as they need to do all the things they would and they're working or maybe they're not working as much and they've got the time but they just don't have the the money to do what their kids really want because whilst a relationship a strong relationship is a really valuable thing it's not as tangible as a nike bag or some new trainers that everyone at school's wearing for example and stuff so a lot of the stuff we did actually in, in the way that we developed our programs was built around this premise of um guilt and understanding guilt and shame and and how people actually feel and what their real journey is like and so the real world part of this show has been actually part of my whole career it's been understanding how people really work in in their real lives and so we we wrote the programs that we write with lots of theory and i've studied as many psychological sociological theories as i possibly can and i've used them in practice none of them describe the human experience and the stuff that we need to try and achieve with people adequately but all of them have something valuable to to put in and half of the stuff that we do now we um we, we it, it we saw that it worked but didn't know why so we retrospectively went back and looked at the evidence and said well, what is working about that so now we have a, a, a really robust overview of all of the different pieces of evidence that we could use to to in any different circumstance um you know try and support people to make change but a lot of it is structural and social and relational totally. so if we're focusing on people's relationships if people come in so say a guy comes into our gutless program for example and uh they're, they're going through a divorce they might be very motivated to lose weight, but what we're, what we're thinking about is like, they've probably just lost a lot of their social relationships because they're normally built up in couples and et cetera. They probably lost a big part of their financial security because they've moved out of the family home, but they're probably still contributing to it, for example. Um, there's lots of, you know, they, they, they may be a good cook, but the likelihood and that certainly our experiences is that they're, they're not. And so they're moving to this, you know, new world of either trying to cook or thinking it's not worth cooking for one. So all of these things are like very human centered. And so I, I think this is why i felt such an affinity with um the con it's not just the bald thing dan I, I, it's it's actually you know um this this i felt a lot of affinity with the fact that you were yeah. focusing on people at a human level and i think that's why it, it makes so much sense to me to have you on uh to have you on the show yeah. um, Look, we can talk about any any place we talk about the world of finance whether it's a consumer client or just households businesses there is a place to apply Mm. the center design thinking and behavioral economics together to change everything. I mean, just one other tangible example is the gambling controls. Yeah. Right? So actually regulatory bodies, particularly here in the UK have actually said that banks do have more of a responsibility when they see when they, you know, when their data shows that frequent transactions to gambling categorized institutions are happening. And when the percentage of that spend is extraordinary. I mean, if, you know, you, there's a couple of charities that are actually aimed at trying to deal with gambling addictions and it's mm -hmm. devastating. Uh, we know about uh, lots of other kind of social ills and, and addictions, alcoholism, et cetera, et cetera, but actually, um, you know, the terrible consequences can happen when families and individuals' wealth are, are kind of squandered in those ways. So the behavioral science team and the design team kind of work together to think about, well, how do we create an experience where we can try to keep people safe and family safe but not step on their toes like if you're really wealthy and you're gambling all night long at 2 a.m why should we stop you right yeah or yeah. even questions of like well and even if you don't have the money should we stop you like is that really our role and so what was so interesting was this notion that in this kind of i don't know whether it's dopamine or what brain chemical was released in this kind of like well maybe i'll win it back yeah. kind of like hope but mm -hmm. i guess there's something like a six second 
um, time span by which your brain will kind of get out of that little bit of a rush and kind of get a little bit more into rational thought. Yeah. So particularly when we saw patterns, when people were repeating, uh, gambling transactions, we just introduced a bit of very polite, but very conscious friction right. in this kind of, you know, experience to kind of try to break that. Now you can still override it. You can still, you know, yeah. uh, go ahead and do things. But I think it's so interesting to look at how we use money because money is just, I mean, if you hold up a, a you know, uh, some money right now, physical currency, and you ask someone, what is this? They'd say, oh, that's a pound or five pounds or whatever it is. He'd say, well, what, what is, what does that mean? And say, oh, well, I don't know. It's a piece of paper with, you know, some Royal on it with some holograms. Yeah. So he's like, well, what is that? You know, at the end of the day, mm. it's an abstract notion of trust. I trust yeah. that this has value backed by an economy, a government, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the day, that is just an enabler to this other thing called life, right? And yeah. so the notion of design and behavioral economics coming together to weigh in on questions about mental health, physical health, family health, business stability um, is so powerful. And particularly in the COVID times, our team yeah. is so fast to help with um, fee repayment holidays and to help with the, the B bills and the coronavirus, you know, kind of bounce back loans. Um, and it's been actually really awesome to have these open conversations about how hard it is because yeah. it's unleashed this new ability for people just to be human. And so anyway, I, I hope coronavirus goes away for good and we're on the cusp of, you know, seeing that happen. But I hope that the honesty that came in those financial conversations will stay because that's the only way that we'll really get into a place of true prosperity. Yeah. Great. Dan, I, I um, I could talk to you for ages about this, but I, I think that's a lot, a good place for us to, to close actually. Um, cause I want to keep everything you said in. And I fear that if you say more, I'm going to have a terrible dilemma of trying to cut things out. Um, but, but just, um, for people who want to sort of learn a little bit more about the, the work that you've done and that you are, are doing, um, where could they go to do that? Are you on social media? Um, how could they get hold of you? Yeah. Just look for my name. Um, I'm on every channel you can imagine personally. Um, there's been a couple of articles um, that have been you know, written about the work that we're doing, mm -hmm. although there actually isn't any anything that's particularly fresh. I would actually suggest that people go to check out the Nudge Doc presentation, maybe put a link to it, because yep. I think that was, I did show a couple of the interfaces and prototypes that are a little bit more tangible for those that are thinking, well, how do I actually make that happen? And then reach out to me anytime. I'm happy to connect to folks. Um, and... Uh, just have a conversation or at least direct you to folks on my team, particularly yeah. if you're trying to make a change with, uh, with design. Great stuff. Thanks, Dan. Um, okay, Dan, I, I really appreciate you giving up your time. I know it, it took us ages to get this in the diary because we were, we were sort of had lots of changes and stuff, but I, I, I knew this would be a, a, a great one. This is going to go out in about February. Um, so I'm hoping that uh, by then all the vaccine stuff yeah, will be uh, well underway. A sign of yeah. love. Exactly. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, a reminder for all, all the, everyone out there, go and get some Valentine's Day stuff. This is coming out at the beginning of the month, plenty of time. Um, so yeah, Dan, thanks so much. I think it's, it's a, a great, um, it, it's fascinating the work that you're doing at Lloyd's and the fact that you're doing it at Lloyd's actually as well. Uh, and I hope that people really see the value of this show as being something completely different to what we would normally um, do. You know, we have a lot of academics, people from 
the public health industry from health um we have um people from industry but this is a very different one and i and i, and I think people will see why uh, you know this is a, a an interesting area for us to go into on the uh, real way real world behavioral science show um but yes thanks so much for your time and uh, i hope that uh, the work goes really well and i and i fully fully um suggest people do go and check out the video we'll put it in the show notes and we'll put lots of other links to to uh, other stuff that's going on uh in in dan's world great Stuart. it was a pleasure thank you so much for pulling me in and i love seeing how very disparate industries and spaces can actually paradoxically but beautifully come together to inspire each other i've learned a lot just hearing you talk about um you know the whole space of weight and i think that if you're a designer out there, read up on behavioral economics, behavioral science. If you're a behavioral scientist, read up on design. And if you're somewhere in between, read about both because it's going to change everything. For sure. Thanks, Dan. Just wanted to say thanks again there to Dan, who I think you will agree highlights the value of this podcast in bringing lots of different ideas to the fore. So whether you agree with them or not, um, whether they directly apply to your industry or not, hopefully these ideas are really, really in interesting to you and they can help reduce our shared blind spots across industries. Listen up next month for some really interesting and new ideas with another interesting guest about how we engage real people in the real world, uh, which is what this show is all about. If you've enjoyed this show, then please do me a favor and share it. Share it with your friends, share it with your colleagues. And also, um, if you could go on to whatever podcast app you listen to this on and um, go and leave a review for me. That makes a big difference in terms of people's willingness to give a, a podcast a go. So if you're enjoying the show, please do go and leave a review. That would really, really help me out and I'd appreciate it a lot. If you have any suggestions of people you'd like to hear from, then please do get hold of me on Twitter at Stu underscore King underscore HH or get hold of me on LinkedIn. You can also read my views on my blog, which is if you just Google busybodies and my blog is in the professional section. In the meantime, stay home, stay safe and look after each other.